Well, like I just read, this was a, a huge portion of Scripture. In seminary, they teach you to preach a, a pericope, that is a thought pattern. And that works nicely in the New Testament when there's these tight little logical arguments that are, you know, a sentence or a verse long. But what do you do in the Old Testament when a thought is several chapters long? Um, but especially when it comes to the plagues of Egypt or the war that God wages against the gods and goddesses of Egypt, I think that it's important just to, to feel the weight of the passage, to feel the nonstop onslaught of what God does to take it in its total. And so we've read now the first nine of the ten plagues. We read last week about the, the, the initial showdown in, in the throne room of Pharaoh where Moses takes his staff and has Aaron toss it on the ground and it becomes a snake that consumes the snakes of the magicians. And we saw with plagues one and two how the Egyptian magicians were able by their secret arts to replicate or, or, or imitate the miracles of Moses. But then by the time the third plague rolled around, the, the sending of gnats that they admitted defeat, that God's finger, they said, was the only thing that could account for what had transpired. And now we see plagues four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. And they pound on Pharaoh and on Egypt like the waves pound on the sea relentlessly. Don't think that one plague ends and whew, there's a time of reprieve and everything gets back to normal and then, oh, something else happens. This is a non-stop battering. God is waging war for his people. This passage has a number of themes, I think, that ties it together. In plagues 1, 2, and 3, we get the idea that the people of Israel shared in them. But starting with plague 4, with the coming of the frogs, we see God making very explicitly a distinction where now his people are going to be exempt while around them carnage reigns. And so as we read this passage, what we're, what we're kind of privy to is the complete deconstruction of Egypt as a society. Everything comes tumbling down. And they're left in shambles by the time this is done. You see, those, you see the aftermath of a hurricane when it hits one of the, one of the Caribbean islands with its force, and, and it should, there's just devastation. Well, there, there's still infrastructure. But God in these plagues and these wonders has taken away all the economic base. He's taken away livestock. He's taken away every green thing growing. He's stripped them down to their monuments and sand. They have nothing left. Unfortunately, too many of us, though, are like Pharaoh. Pharaoh, especially in the beginning, he was more than happy to see his magicians simulate the miracles of Moses and then a 
comfort and console himself with the knowledge that if my guys can do it, then things aren't really that bad. And so we look for a way to rationalize or explain away these, these wonders with natural phenomena. So that way the, the power of what God is doing here doesn't get taken to heart. If you read any commentaries, I mean the liberal commentaries are, are unanimous that all that was happening here was natural phenomenons that these primitive people were attributing to deity. You've heard that, I'm sure. But notice how specific the text is. It comes when Moses says. And then what happens when Moses calls it to stop? It stops. And when locusts leave, there's not one left. When flies leave, there's not one left. When frogs leave, there's not one left. These are no mere natural phenomenons. But have you ever wondered, why is it that God, frogs? Locusts? I mean, hail? Bad hailstorms happen that kill people. Locusts? I mean, there's swarms of locusts routinely around the globe. If you want to display your power, God, you know, the the boy in me, I used to imagine it would be so much more awesome, if not more grotesque, but if Moses had walked into that throne room, and just, just imagine, just imagine Pharaoh's up there, and he's got his advisors. What would, have, what would have happened if Moses had pointed at the first guy, and he'd like erupted in flames, and died screaming, ah, oh, and then he pointed at the next guy, and he like blows up into a puddle of goo. And then he points to the next guy, right, and his, and his head like implodes. I mean, just imagine if he's going down the line, just pointing at people and Wouldn't that have been a more amazing display and a more immediate display? Let's just, get, let's just get to it. But instead, the Lord like totally destroys this whole country. Well, the reason I think that God didn't have Moses go in there and start going down the line exploding people is because God's not primarily concerned with just killing people. He's trying to teach a lesson. And as we learn in chapter 9, he's doing these things that his name may be great in the earth. The reason he's doing what he's doing, the reason he has his own people experience it, is because our hearts are held captive to foreign gods, to false gods. And we put our trust in them to meet our needs. We put our trust in the gods of our culture, whatever culture it may be. Okay, I'm speaking to, to Americans. But this, this sentence, we put our gods in the gods of our culture, can be applied to any culture. And we think that those gods will meet our needs. That they are the forces that keep chaos and disorder and destruction and death at bay. But God wants us to know that if you're trusting in those gods, they can do nothing. It's illusory. 
It's smoke and mirrors. It's an imitation at best. It's amazing. In the eighth plague, boils, how it says, it makes a note that the magicians couldn't even stand before him. You want to know why that's interesting? Because this is not a secular world back then. The magician class was the physician class. And the physicians of Egypt had cutting-edge technology. I mean, it's, they, we, even modern medical people can't quite duplicate a mummification process the way they did. Did you know that? I've watched my kids at Thanks to Their Homeschooling watch these specials. Even with modern technology, we can't quite duplicate a mummy process, mummification process the way they could. They were not dummies. But yet, their physicians are helpless. They can do nothing. Now, is that not speaking a powerful word against us in our age? We trust in our doctors. We think that the medical science we have can save us, can prolong our lives, take away our suffering and our misery. And it, too, is nothing before the power of God. The gods we trust in are powerless to save. And the Lord wants his people desperately to not only get out of Egypt, but he wants Egypt out of his people. And so that's what sanctification is for us. Sanctification is God getting the world out of us by the power of the Spirit, applying the work of Christ to us where our affections and our longings and our aspirations are, are, are cleansed and reshaped until the world is in, purged from us. Because to the extent that you're trusting in the world, you are not trusting in God. Have you ever wondered about the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism? Do you know that question? The two most famous questions of any catechism, I think, in, in the church is either the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is, what is the chief end of man? And maybe right behind it is the Heidelberg Catechism. And, and I think its question one is perhaps even more beautiful than the Westminster Shorter Catechism. But the question is this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Have you ever reflected on that? Your only comfort. What is your only comfort? Now we maybe think, well, there's lots of comforts in my life. My pillow, you know, comfort food, these, these nice chairs that help take the edge off of that long passage we just read. No, strip all the dross away. Burn it, melt it away. Get down to your core. What is your only comfort? The thing that when all else fails, what is holding up your life? What gives you the strength to go on? What is your center? That's the question that God wants us to answer. And we say God, and that may even be true, but I think at best, most of us, we have faith mixed with unbelief. So for many of us, the best we'll ever muster is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But God is at work zealously purging the world and its, and its loyalties from us 
but it's hard and painful. I remember when I was in, uh, when I was a much younger man, and I was in Second Ranger Battalion, and we would go on these long road marches, and, and a road march is basically a, a forced march, I think battalion death march, except you know they weren't shooting us. Uh, we would go on these miles and mile walks with hard boots and and heavy packs. There were times when I'd be carrying a pack on my back that was basically 50% of my body weight. And you walk for miles and miles and miles and miles. Oh my goodness, the miles. Till your feet are bloodied. And you would walk and and and, and you're walking and you're having and you have a weapon in your arms. And you're walking and this pack's on your back and you're just plodding one foot in front of the other for miles. Oh, I think the longest one I ever did with that much weight was 25 miles. We did longer ones, but it was with less weight. But you get to the point where it's time now to drop your pack. This burden that I've been carrying, that's 100 pounds. And I drop it. And I'm hunched over, and I'd quit. The, the, our rucksacks have these quick releases, so you can just pull these things, and it falls, literally falls to the ground. I did that, and what do you think it was like? Have you ever had a heavy pack on your back for a protracted time? You take it off, you don't go, woohoo! It almost hurts. I don't know the medical science behind why. Why the, re- why the release of the weight causes physical pain, but it's like, ah. And then you have, to, oh, your muscles and bones have gotten used to a position, and it hurts. People think deliverance is quick and easy and painless. But when you've been trapped and ensnared by sin for years and decades in a life, and you're used to carrying a weight, and the Lord is going to carve that out, He's going to take away your dependence on money. He's going to take away your pride and your appearance and your wits and your business acumen. And you've been trusting in this. The pride of place that you've been giving to your family and he wants to take it away. It doesn't come off easy. It hurts. But it hurts for our good. And so the people of Israel experienced the hardship. One of the things that reminds me of the Lord's amazing goodness to us, though, is in the fact that he makes a distinction here. He makes a distinction between his people and the people of Egypt. Child of God, you are not destined for wrath. The wrath that Romans 1 says is now revealed from heaven and the wrath that we read in Revelation is to be poured upon the world, that is not your destiny. And all of the Lord's wonders that He works in the earth are for your good and your salvation. Now when I hear that the God of the universe makes a distinction between those who are His and those who are not, this tells me two things. One, you better get identified with God's people. Now, we live in an age where God takes, God accepts converts. Jesus, he invites you to trust in him. 
He invites people to repent. He invites people to come to Him. Flee to Him while you can. In the seventh plague, we see God's mercy. Have you noticed? It's the plague where He actually gives a warning. And He gives instructions of what to do. And it says the people of Egypt who feared the Lord, that's code for they believed Him and they believed that His word and His power were greater than the powers of the gods they had been trusting in. What did they do? They took their animals and their people out of the fields and put them in barns or houses to shelter them. And they were spared. So right now is the day of forgiveness. Right now the Lord accepts immigrants into His people. Turn to Him. But people of God, this distinction that the Lord makes testifies to the need for us to tell the world and go. It's not so different than in John 10 when Jesus testifies that he has sheep who are not of this fold, meaning the people of Israel. But they will hear my voice and they will follow him. Our job now is to go into the world and locate Christ's sheep, the people of God who are trapped in Egypt, metaphorically speaking, and call them out lest they perish. And the good news is that the will of our Christ is not one of those for whom he has shed his blood will perish. So go, call, testify, Invite, plead, knowing that your labor is not in vain. This passage is driving home who God is. We said that the book of Exodus is a book where God reveals himself more than perhaps in any other book. In fact, in these chapters, with these nine plagues that we've just read, Ten times the Lord says that someone will know that he is the Lord. The Lord wants his name known. He does what he does for the glory and greatness of his name in the earth. And we learn in chapter 10 that one of the things he wants us to do is pass along the news of his work to our children and to our children's children which itself is a hint that God doesn't normally do what he does in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Otherwise, there would be no need to tell your children. They could just see it for themselves. But our faith is a historical faith, meaning it happens in real life, but God works in wondrous, visible ways at key moments in salvation history. And when we see the handiwork of God around us, we must relate it to our children. This modern notion, I'm not going to tell my children what to believe. I'm going to let them figure that out for themselves. Hogwash. You tell them what you are convinced is true. You tell them, you, you tell them that it's not wrong to treat people of a different color badly because you think that's true. Do you think the gospel is true? then teach it to them as truth. You believe there's a God who has preserved his people from emperors, 
from Caesars, from kings, from plagues, from pestilence. And he's built his church. He's preserved his word despite the fact that no other piece of literature in history has endured as much opposition. God does amazing things. Do you pass that along? As a, as a treasure, as a heritage, as a part of our family story? That's what God wants. There's a few things I want to point out before we close. First, this passage drives home that God is almighty. The complete foundation of Egyptian society is undermined and undone here. Whatever the forces are, economic forces, material forces, physical, God exerts complete authority over it. Now, brothers and sisters, this means that God is almighty over the forces that make your life livable. The economic forces that drive the market, the weather, the ground, even your very health. God is almighty. The physicians of Egypt could not stand. The architects of Egypt could not keep the hail away. The farmers, they just had to start over. Brothers and sisters, we serve a God who is so powerful that he is not out of control at any point. So then why do we lie awake at night worrying about the results of that MRI? I've pondered, why is it that I've been out on combat missions. I have gone out of the gate to interact with people who wanted to kill me. And I haven't been afraid. But yet, I'm afraid, afraid to lie down in the woods because I might get a tick that gives me Lyme disease. I wasn't afraid when mortar rounds were incoming but I'm in an airplane that starts bouncing and my blood pressure spikes. Why is it? Because I, an enemy can be outsmarted. An enemy can be killed. I can't kill the uncontrollable forces of chaos. Throughout human history, plagues have been the death of so many. Our lives are so frail and we delude ourselves into thinking that we're safe and secure and that our jobs and our economic standing and we have all these smart doctors, but plague and pestilence is always there. About a hundred years ago now, there was an outbreak of flu that killed nearly a hundred million people. It was like 5% of the world's population at that time. Any of you guys remember, and it was in 86 when mad cow disease was discovered in England. And then it was in the 90s when they learned that it can be transmitted to humans. And millions upon millions of cattle had to be slaughtered. Even now, because I lived in Europe during the 80s, I'm not allowed to give blood because of the mad cow disease. Ebola. We talk about locust plagues 
in the 1920s and 30s, a locust plague wiped out an area of Africa roughly twice the size of the contiguous United States. Even now, in Arkansas, they're having an outbreak of these, of these buffalo gnats, these blood-sucking fly-like gnat things that kill animals. Horses and cattle are being killed out in the pasture. Our lives, brothers and sisters, are frail. And this world is a scary place. And we insulate ourselves thinking that that means we're safe. But it is the Lord and the Lord alone who is almighty. And whatever he does is right. We learn that God is sovereign. Now when I say sovereign, I don't mean almighty. I mean he does what he does for the reasons he decides to do it. Israel did not deserve the distinction that was made to them. It was God's mercy, pure and simple. And we read in chapter 9, verse 16, and it rattles our cage. Because what we want to hear is that God hardens Pharaoh's heart in response to Pharaoh's actions. In other words, God doesn't really mean to do anything, but he just sort of confirms his own bad behavior. But in verse 16 of chapter 9, we're told something far more awe-inspiring and fear-inducing, and that is this. I raised you up for this purpose. Think about that. Think about all that's involved in the raising up of a king. Egypt comes together. Dynasty after Egyptian dynasty happens. All leading to this point that I might have you sitting in this chair that I can work my wonders in the world. And we fear and fret about who's going to be in office next. We fear what the coming election might hold. God's power is so great that he puts people where he wants them for the purpose he wants them, even if that purpose is to display his power in judgment. Now, right here, Egypt is on the receiving end of God's justice. But did you know that the salvation of Egypt began here? They're introduced to the God of Israel here. In chapter 12, we learn that a mixed multitude is going to leave Egypt with the Israelites. A mixed multitude. Is it really inconceivable that some of that mixed multitude are, in fact, some of the Egyptians who had come to fear the Lord? And then we get to Isaiah 19, which pictures a day in which Egypt will be called my people. Brothers and sisters, our God is a great God. And he works wonders in the earth precisely to show that the gods of this age cannot avail us. He alone is almighty. He alone is sovereign. He alone is a sure guide for the future. Trust in him. Savor him above everything else that competes for your affections. And God will be your guide. Let us pray.